Today, I, I have the privilege of sharing with you uh, some things that we got to do just a couple weeks ago where I took uh, a team of eight students and another adult leader with me, and we went to a week-long urban mission trip called Lead the Cause. Now, maybe you've heard about Lead the Cause because we've been talking about it off and on for the last couple months here. And I want to say, first off, thank you to each and every one of you that helped support those students to be able to go, uh, because it was an incredible uh, experience and opportunity for them. And if you really want to know kind of what your investment went to, I would encourage you to find one of the students that went. And if you don't know who they are, come and talk to me. I'll round them up for you. I don't have a problem. Jeremiah will get them too. He has no problem chasing down kids. So, But we'll get them so you can talk to them because I want you to hear from them uh, what it is that they went and did, the experiences that they had, and the things that God did in their hearts uh, but today I, I get to share with you some of those experiences, and I'm not just going to give you kind of a mission trip update. What I'm going to do is I want to share with you these experiences while also giving you uh, a kind of condensed version of what we learned throughout the week uh, so that you can experience with us. Uh, these same things. Now, most mission trips are kind of focused on reaching the area where you've gone to. It's that idea of we are going on a mission sent out from here to that place to share the gospel with people and to care for people and support the ministries that are local there so that people can come to know Christ further more and more in that area. Uh, Lead the cause is not that kind of mission trip. In fact, Lead the Cause is more like a mission trip training and send-off, which is funny because the place that they're sent to is back home. And that's what I love about Lead the Cause is it's not about the trip that they go on. It's about the trip that they live each and every day. It's about coming home with a boldness and excitement and, and a new heart to see people know Christ. And while we were there, we did get opportunity to do that, to reach out to people, some strangers, some friends, some family members who, who needed to hear the message of Jesus. So we had about 300 students there. And in that week, 300 students had over 1,600 conversations where they shared the gospel. Over 30 people put their faith in Christ for the first time that week, including one of our girls who we took who had the privilege of calling and leading her father to Christ over the phone, which was an incredible thing to see. And, and so I would encourage you to talk to the students who went so that you can hear what went on. It's an incredible thing. But I really, I, I'm really excited today to use these opportunities to help you understand uh, something a little differently. I want to help you understand what happens when we share the gospel instead of sharing religion. What happens when we uh, are willing to share the exciting, amazing truth of Christ instead of sharing our exciting, amazing opinions and beliefs? I want to show you what it looks like when we evangelize by engaging instead of enraging. And so today we're going to use those opportunities that we had to show you that. Two of the days of the week at Lead the Cause, we got to go out into the communities around the area we were at and share the gospel with people who we've never met, who we'll probably never see again. And to some of you, you're thinking, that sounds really strange, that idea of just walking out into a neighborhood and talking to random strangers about Jesus. And honestly, I don't blame you for thinking that sounds strange. Because in our culture, it re- it's really awkward. It's kind of a strange, awkward thing. But The more I have experienced this, the more I've realized that I'm kind of a strange, awkward guy. And so it fits really well for me. I really enjoy these moments and these opportunities to go out and to talk to people in awkward, weird ways about Jesus. And let me show you a picture of that because the most amazing part to me is that this is exactly what God used to start, lay the groundwork for the church in the book of Acts. So if you want to open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 8, we're going to look in verses 26 through 36 here. This is the story of Philip. Now, Philip had been sharing the gospel in the city of Jerusalem, had been encouraging other believers, had been reaching out to the lost, and he was having an incredible ministry there. But God had something else for Philip to do. So that's where we start in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Here's what it says. As for Philip, 
An angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, we're going we're gonna to break this down a little bit, and I want you to kind of understand what just happened here with me. So Philip is in Jerusalem having a great ministry, and God says, Philip, I need you to head south into the desert. So Philip doesn't even question. He just goes. He heads down that road. Then God says, you see that chariot over there? Go walk by it. Philip, again, just goes. Now, I love how vague God is being in this. While Philip was in Jerusalem, God could have said, okay, Philip, there's a guy heading down the road into the desert. He's an Ethiopian. He, he works for the queen, and he is reading from the prophet Isaiah right now. This is what he's reading, and I want you to go and explain to him the gospel. Just go over there and do it. God doesn't do that. He gives Philip these little cues of, okay, I just want you to be obedient to this that I'm giving you. Be obedient to this. And he gets Philip right up to the point where then an opportunity presents itself for Philip to step in and share the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's up to Philip to step up and do that. And I believe that there's a lesson in that for us today that there's a lot of times that God is not going to just look at you and say, hey, go share the gospel with that person. But God's going to say, hey, I want you to head this way. I want you to start going this direction. Hey, you see that person over there? Go sit by them. Now, we're going to look at this, and, and I want you to think about this moment in kind of today's terms. So let's picture this. You're in a car. You're riding in the back of the car because you didn't feel like driving, and, and you've got a new book that you're reading. So you're flipping through it and, and reading parts of it, but you're not really understanding what's going on in the book. It just doesn't make sense. So you decide, I'm going to read it out loud. Maybe the person who's driving or anybody else in the car can help me understand, or maybe just hearing it out loud will help me to grasp it more. So you're reading it out loud, and you roll down the windows, and you're just going down the road, and you come upon some really heavy traffic. So you're having to move pretty slow. All of a sudden, you notice there's a guy out of breath, power walking right next to your open window. And he's hearing you read as you get silent and start slowly rolling up the window, he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? How awkward of a moment would that be? It'd be really strange for the person sitting in the car and for the guy power walking outside of the car. It'd be a really weird moment. Most of us try to avoid moments like that at all cost. That stuff is, is strange. We don't want anything to do with it. But if you remember the story we just read, God took that awkward and used it to bring in the awesome, didn't he? Because the thing we need to pick up on here is that God uses awkward situations sometimes. In fact, way more often than some of us want him to. But that's how God works. And, and I want you to think about this. Philip did not question it. He just did it. Even though it didn't make sense to him, maybe. Even though it felt awkward for him to run up to a random chariot. And just start talking to somebody. He was willing to do it because he knew that there was something much bigger and much more important going on than his image and reputation. And this is something I think we need to work to get through our, our thick skulls a little bit on this. Too often we avoid doing what God 
has called us to do or equipped us to do because we're worried that our image or reputation might be tainted in some way. We're afraid that if we say something about Jesus, it might cause people to think we're weird. And I say this to students all the time, and I'm going to say it to you as adults, because I think that as adults, we probably need to hear this more often. If your reputation or image is damaged by bringing up the name of Jesus, is that a reputation or image that you should be holding on to? All of us can sit in here and go, well, no, that's not the reputation or image. We can agree with the statement, but here's my question. Is that how you live? Do you live as though bringing up Jesus would taint your image? I know that there are days where I really struggle with that, where I'm afraid to bring things up, even though I see an opportunity because I don't know what they're going to think of me. It's difficult at times. It's hard and it's awkward. But I want you to hear what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I love this section because It's calling us to put to death our image and reputation. To say, that does not matter. To follow Jesus means to say, I don't need this. When Jesus said, follow me, the Greek words he used actually mean, put your feet where mine have been. Meaning, look where my footprints are and put your foot right on them. The idea of being a disciple, a follower is the idea of trying to be just like the one you're following. And so you step exactly where they have stepped and start doing what they do. A disciple of Jesus is not someone just heading in the same direction. It's someone who is striving to be just like Christ. And that's what we're called to when we're called to follow. But the first thing we have to do in that is put aside our reputation, our image, and realize there's something bigger and more important going on than us. You see, Philip knew that it wasn't his reputation that was at stake. It was the soul of another man. It was another person's eternity at stake. And we need to start seeing that because it's time for us to move from being just believers into being disciples. So I have a resource here today that I want to help you understand maybe where you're at in your walk of faith. There's uh, a resource that I found that is better for this than anything else that I've ever seen. And it is a resource called Four Chair Discipleship. Basically, it's this. They break it down into four chairs where we sit in our walk of faith. And so I'm going to walk you through these chairs here so you can maybe get an idea of where you're at. But after service today, between the doors on your way out, there are papers sitting there that help you take kind of a little quiz, a self-evaluation to understand what chair you're really sitting in in your walk of faith. And I would encourage you to take that and to be honest with your answers, to personally go through that, to score yourself and see where you sit because then you can know, okay, so what is my next step? How do I grow in my faith from here? But in order to grow, a lot of times we need to know where we're at. So that's what it will help you do. But let's go through those real quickly. Chair one is the seeker. This is the person who has not put their faith in Christ. And they, uh, they don't know what would happen if they were to die. And they are either fearful, apathetic, confused, convinced that they are saved through some false means, or they're just unaware of it. That's chair one. Chair two is the believer. This is the person who's put their faith in Christ as the one and only way for them to be saved. They are developing the fruit of the spirit and they're beginning to practice spiritual disciplines uh, that grow them in their faith. Now, this is a deceiving chair because it's not a bad chair, but it's a very comfortable chair. We hear the description of it and we go, wow, that sounds like someone who's really growing in their faith. And the truth is, at first, yes, but the problem comes in when many of us sit in that chair for decades. That's all we do. We become a believer. We put our faith in Christ. We have that salvation that is secure. 
and we're very comfortable in that. So we sit. We like to just be there. What's the point in going any further if I have that? I've got my salvation. I've got my God. There's no need for anything else, right? The problem with that is we, we really are missing out on the fact that we are called to and gifted for much more than just chair two. Chair three is the worker. This is the person who's realized that they need to carry the message of the gospel to the lost and to do, they're doing things to make that happen. They're not just plugged into a ministry at their local church, but they are doing the ministry that they volunteered for. That may sound confusing because when we think of plugged in, we, we think, oh, you're doing ministry. But the truth is, if we're going to be honest, a lot of us volunteer for a ministry and just show up. We get there and we have a checklist mentality of saying, well, I volunteered for it, so I'm going to earn favor with God. We think that our presence is more important than our performance in it. And so we just show up and become a warm body standing in the corner. We only jump in when it's time uh, for us to do the one thing we're good at or when uh, somebody pushes us to jump in. That's not, that's the chair two mentality and we need to get out of that. A chair three worker is somebody who is really doing the ministry that they have volunteered for or the ministry that they see around them. They're actually stepping into it and hands on taking it up and doing it. The worker is one who is working towards their own Christ likeness while encouraging, praying for and caring for others to see them grow in the same way. Then we get to the last chair, chair four. This is the disciple maker. This is the person who's not only sharing their faith, but they are training and equipping others to do the same. They are regularly discipling others to move forward in their faith. Even uh, they even have people that they've discipled who are now discipling others. This is the goal that Christ has for each of us. And it's to live out exactly what the uh, mission statement of this church is, which is to see people get saved and grow while reaching the next. That is to see disciples making disciples who make disciples. I love that our church is built on that mission. But my question is, are we living that mission? Are we a church that has these chair for disciple makers doing this work and we're producing more and more of those? Are we a church full of chair two believers? I think it's time for us to wake up and realize that if we are just chair two, if we're just saved, we're missing out on a huge part of our faith. And it's exactly what Jesus talked about in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When we are living as just believers, a lot of us look and say, well, I, I know I'm saved, but I don't really know that I'm having full life. My faith doesn't feel full, I guess. It feels like I'm constantly having to grow and constantly having to work and constantly having to figure other things out in order to feel my life being a little better, a little more full. But see, that's not what Jesus described that he came to give. He came to give fullness of life. That is found when we walk in what he's called us to, when we actually put our feet where his have been and become followers, disciples who are making disciples. We're doing what he's called us to. We start to find that evangelism, discipleship, it's miracle grow for our faith. It ignites us and helps us to walk forward and understand more and more what the fullness of life in Christ is. As you leave today, I would encourage you to grab one of those papers to go through and kind of figure out what chair are you sitting in? Because when you know where you're at, you can understand what your next step is. When we figured out that there's more to our faith than just us being saved, it's time for us to move forward to being evangelism driven. And I want you to see how that works using my own experiences from lead the cause. One of the things that we did at Lead the Cause, we used a method uh, that I like to use with our students here as well, and it's one that we call the cause circle. This is a circle that has three words around it, and it has lines in the middle because we put names in it. But the three words on the outside are prayer, care, and share. 
We spend time praying for the people who we've put in our cause circle that God would open their hearts, that God would give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. Then we take opportunities to care for them, sometimes spiritual needs, sometimes emotional needs, sometimes physical needs, because when we care, it opens up those opportunities for us to share. And today I want to talk to you specifically about that last one, but you need to understand there is importance in us coming to God in prayer to start and remembering and realizing that it is him alone who saves. If I'm not going to pray, I'm just going to go out of my own strength. I'm taking that position. I'm deciding that I can be God and either force them into it or save them, convince them of it in some way that I don't really need anything else. But we need to realize it is only God who saves. And so we need to come to him in prayer We need to be willing to take the opportunities to care, even if it inconveniences us at times. And then we need to take advantage of the opportunities to share, even if it's awkward at times. Some of us don't like the idea of sharing the gospel because we don't know it well enough to share it. We're afraid that I might mess something up. I'm going to say something wrong. I don't understand it. And I will tell you, I'm not going to lie, gospel fluency, being able to speak it well, it's important It really is. We need to know the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ paying the price that you could not pay to give you the life that you could never earn. This is incredible news. This is amazing news. This is the news that should wake you up in the morning and keep you up late at night. This is exciting stuff. And I want you to imagine if every morning before your feet hit the ground out of your bed, you realized that you didn't have to spend eternity in hell because of what Jesus had done for you on the cross. Because his blood was shed, you get to live in a relationship with God that started the moment you put your faith in Jesus and lasts forever. If we remembered that and walked out of our rooms in the morning thinking that and dwelling on that, can you imagine how different we would live? We as believers need to hold on to the gospel. We need to preach it to ourselves on a daily basis. And as we do that, it helps us remember and gain gospel fluency. One of the other things that helps a ton is talking about our faith. Sitting down with another believer and actually articulating the things that you know in your mind. You know things about Jesus, but a lot of times we have to put it into words that we understand before we accept it. And some of us have been saved for many years and cannot explain to you why. Because we've never taken time to talk about it, to figure out what it really means. We just took someone else's word for it instead of letting God change and renew, help us to grow. So I would encourage you, grab another believer and talk to them. Gain gospel fluency by talking it through, by being excited about it, by celebrating it with others. When we know the gospel, we need to understand how to share it in ways that don't attack, ways that don't belittle, and ways that don't lie or damage. Because see, many times our idea of evangelism is to gear ourselves up with a bunch of ways that we can tear down the uh, belief system of the person we're going to go talk to. So we'll study and know what weaknesses are there. And those are the points that we come at really hard. We like to attack. And the problem is we don't end up attacking what they believe. We end up attacking them. It's just as if somebody came up to you and started talking to you and attacking your belief in Jesus, you would feel personally attacked. And we need to stop using that as a tactic to share the gospel because that's not what we're called to. The other side of it is belittling, where it's instead of just attacking, we see their own weakness of their understanding and their own faith, and we belittle them for that. We make fun of them. We laugh at them for not knowing their own faith. It happens more often than you'd think, and we need to be careful not to do that. The other one we need to watch out for is we need to not lie when we're sharing the gospel. Either we share a false truth about what it takes to be saved, or we tell them things like this. And if you put your faith in Jesus, your whole life will get better. Anyone who has been saved for longer than five minutes knows that that's not true. It's not true. It doesn't fix all of your problems and make them go away, but suddenly you have a hope in all of your problems. You have God with you, walking with you through each and every one of those circumstances. It changes those things. 
but it's about much more than that. And we need to quit lying and selling something that's false. Because when we do any of those three things, we damage the witness that we have and the image of God that they're seeing. And it's time for us to learn how we can share the gospel in ways that, again, engage them instead of enraging them. So I'm going to walk you through four different conversations that I got to have on one of our outreach days during Lead the Cause. And I hope that it helps you see ways that we can do this. So the first conversation I got to have was with a railroad worker. Now, when I say railroad worker, here's what his job was. We were coming, we dropped, got dropped off out of a bus down at a movie theater just down the block from Old Town, Arvada. We were sent into Old Town, which is a cool area, a lot of people out there, a lot of shops and restaurants, and it's a very cool area, but we had to walk up across some railroad tracks up this hill to get to our location, and there were two guys sitting at the railroad tracks, one on each side of the road, holding signs that say, stop and slow. Now, I didn't know what was going on there because they had the big bars that come down for the railroad crossing, and they even had little ones over the sidewalk, in case you're texting and don't realize there's a 30-ton train in front of you. So... It happens. Uh, but I walk over to him as we're heading up and I say, so, hey, what is, what is your job? What is it that you're doing here today? He said, well, those arms are broken. They're repairing them. So if a train comes, which didn't happen the entire time we were there, but if a train comes, I have to stand out here in the road with a stop sign. And when the train goes by, I get to step back over here and sit down. That was his job. I don't know if it was just a temporary job or, or what it was, but that was what he was doing that day. So I'm talking to him a little bit about that, and I notice he has these buttons on his vest that show me that he was a Marine. The other thing that showed me he was a Marine was that his biceps were the size of small SUVs, and so <laughs> that kind of threw me a little bit. But I asked him, I said, so you were a Marine? And he said, yeah, I served for seven years. And he starts explaining to me some of those things uh, that went on while he served in the military, but didn't seem to want to talk about that too much. But I noticed something else. He was wearing a big cross necklace, this big, shiny gold cross. Now, most of us would see that and go, great, he's a Christian. He believes in Jesus. This is awesome. And so I asked him, I said, hey, you're wearing a cross necklace. Does that mean you believe in God? He said, well, yeah, I believe in God. Of course I do. I said, okay, so what makes you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? And he said, well, it's definitely not the things that I'm seeing around me here. Because when I look around at the world, it's just falling apart. It's junk. I don't understand it. And I know I'm not really allowed to ask questions of God about that. And I said, now, wait a second. Who told you you can't ask questions of God? Who told you that you, you can't say, God, why is this going on? And he said, well, I don't know. It's just, it's God. You can't. You just don't ask questions. So I got to share with them. I asked him, have you ever read the book of Psalms? Well, probably, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I said, the book of Psalms, most of it is written by a man named David, who God called a man after his own heart. David, throughout the book of Psalms, constantly asked, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? God, why have you abandoned me? God, why do the evil people prosper while the innocent people suffer? God, why is this going on? God, how long will you be away from me? And as I shared that with him, I could see his eyes kind of light up going, now, wait a second. I can ask God why these things are happening. And he doesn't just smite me right here. He won't send a stray train over off the side and get me. I can ask God why there's suffering and struggle going on around me in my community. And I said, you can ask him those questions he said, well, what I, why I believe is not because of those things, though. I believe because of the blessings that God has poured out on me. I said, okay, what blessings? He said, well, it's things like when I was in the military, God kept me safe through every dangerous thing that I had to do. I've been homeless five times. I've never spent a single night on the street. Things like that to him that he goes, that's God's hand doing things I don't deserve and I could never earn and, and that's it. That's why I believe in God, because he's shown himself through those blessings. And I got to remind him of how David would ask God, why? Why is this going on? And it always seemed to come back to David realizing the blessings of God that show his faithfulness. And that's where David was. And it's an incredible thing to see that. And this man was very encouraged by it. But then he said this to me. He said, you know, all these people tell me that Jesus is all that, but I'm not sure about that. And he starts going on talking about something else. Now, in my mind, I'm going, wait a second. 
You're wearing a very large cross necklace and you don't believe in Jesus. You think that Jesus doesn't really matter to this. Why are you wearing a cross? Now, in that moment, could I have attacked him for that? Yeah, absolutely. I could have belittled him going, you you can't wear something you don't understand. What are you doing? I'm glad that God held my tongue because a few seconds later, he starts chuckling and he goes, you know what's crazy? This morning, I was talking to my coworker. He's a young guy in his 20s. And he came up to me and said, you know what? I want to share with you my one goal in life. He said, my life goal, my one goal in life is to get to heaven. That's what his friend had told him that morning. So for hours of the day, from nine until two, when I walked up to him, he has been thinking, why is this man, my friend, who's so young and has his whole life in front of him, why is he so focused on getting to heaven? What is so important about getting to heaven? How do you get to heaven? He's been contemplating this all day long, and here comes this weird, awkward guy walking up to him to talk to him about it. And so I took advantage of that opportunity and got to share with him about Jesus, who he was unsure about. I realized, you know what? This is my Ethiopian eunuch. This is the guy who was just out of the way, not in the area where I was heading to minister to, and yet God was reaching out to, and he didn't understand what it was that he was contemplating. He needed someone to come alongside and share it with him. So I got to share the truth of Jesus. I got to share that it is through Jesus's work on the cross that he can be saved, not through his own good works. It's by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. And he was amazed by these things, but he said, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me in my life, I need to surrender to Jesus. And I'm just not sure about that. So I said to him, okay, so how long is your shift today? He said, well, I mean, I'll be here for a while, probably another five hours. And I said, great, I'm going to be back by in two. And he kind of laughed at me going, oh my gosh, this guy's not going to leave me alone. (laughs) I said, I want you to think about it and I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to you about it again before I leave. A couple hours later, when we had finished our outreach time, I came back to him and he saw me about a block away and was just shaking his head and chuckling going, oh gosh, awkward. (laughs) And I walked up to him and and asked him, so how, how did your time go thinking? Well, I'm, I'm still unsure. I just don't know what that's going to cost me. I don't know what, what I need to do. And I said something, you know, most of the time in that moment, I would have gotten kind of disheartened and frustrated. Going, gosh, I've shared everything. What more does this guy need? What more is he waiting on? But then I realized what it is that Jesus said in Luke 14, 25 through 33, where he talked to his disciples about counting up the cost before following him. And how he is not afraid for them to sit down and see what it might cost them compared to what he's worth. And I got to share that with this man and say, you're in chair one as a seeker and you're in a great place right now because you're looking and counting up to see whether or not Jesus is worth it and he's not afraid of that at all. And so I got to pray with him before I left and I have no idea if I will ever see that man again. But my prayer and hope is is that at least when I get to heaven, he'll be there. Not because of anything that I did, but because of what God does carrying on from here to continue to pursue him. Right after the first part of that conversation where uh, I walked away to go do the rest of our outreach time, I was looking for one of our boys who had uh, stepped away to pray during the conversation that I had and and then disappeared completely. So I'm thinking I have a runaway, you know, I'm, I got to find him. He's gone. He's hiding. Uh, but then I finally get a hold of him. He says, no, I'm down the street here. I, somebody stopped me to talk to me about stuff. Just, I'll, I'll just wait for you down here. I start heading down the street and there's a girl there who steps out in front of me and, and she goes, Hey, do you have 60 seconds to talk? And I'm thinking, God, if it's going to be this easy, this is great. Absolutely. I'll talk to you. She says, great. Uh, We're raising support for gay rights. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. My first reaction was, okay. Because I'm coming in, you know, pumped up like Rocky at the top of the steps. And she hit me right in the gut with that statement. I wasn't expecting it. But then in that moment, I thought of something else. Why would I react that way? What is it about her that makes her different from me. 
What is it about her that makes her less valuable than me? Nothing. I realize she is created in the image of God just the same way that I am. And I need to respect her as that. Someone whose value was placed on them when God created them, not because of the choices that they've made. And so I said, okay, so what support are you raising? And she handed me the iPad and there was a map of the United States with a bunch of states blacked out and some of them in red. And she said, there are 28 states right now where people who are homosexual are being uh, fired for that or unable to get jobs because of that. I thought in that moment, you know what? If my sin that I had lived in was handed to the people who were going to hire me, every single one of them, or even just some of the, uh, the ones that are been, have been more public, and they decided they weren't going to hire me because of that, that would hurt. That would feel like I was being judged by the people around me based upon the choices that I've made, which you may look and say, absolutely, that's fair. But here's the thing. You need to think about your own sin. What if you lost your job because of it? What if you couldn't get a job because of your sin? See, I look in scripture and I know what scripture says about homosexuality, but I also know what scripture says about her. Her name was Zimmy. And I looked at Zimmy and I said, Zimmy, guess what? I'm a pastor. That caused her to have the same reaction that I had a minute ago. But I said, Zimmy, I'm a pastor and this is wrong. This is wrong. I don't think it's right that you're being treated as less valuable, as less important and less capable. You are created in the image of God just the same as I am. You have just the same value in God's eyes that I do. And I got to share the truth of Jesus with her and pray with her and one of our students who was right there. And it was an incredible opportunity because later, as I'm walking down the street right before we're ready to leave and I'm heading over to meet up with a group of our students, Zimmy was standing there on the corner with her friend and she stepped out of that group and she came and gave me a hug and told me how much it meant to her that a Christian treated her differently, that a pastor did not treat her as though she was just wrong, but treated her as if she had value. And I got to hug her and tell her how much God loves her and how much I love her too. And in that moment, I had this opportunity to share the gospel with her through Christ's love for her. And we need to stop looking at people and discounting their opportunity to share with them because of choices that they've made and opinions we have about it. We need to understand who Jesus came and hung out with. I seem to remember stories of Jesus eating with prostitutes, tax collectors, the people who the religious community had deemed as completely worthless. That's who he came for. We sang it today and it says it in his word that he came to seek and save that which was lost. He doesn't put any more definition on it other than lost. At one point, each and every one of us fell in that category until we have put our faith in Christ and we need to start seeing people who don't know him as lost, not based upon specific sins, but just the fact that they don't know him. They don't have the hope that we do. And it's time for us to stop trying to make people fix themselves to come to Jesus and realize that it's time for them to come to Jesus and he will work on their hearts. The next guy that we ran into was down the block a little bit at a park. He was a homeless man named Anthony. Now, we're walking up to him. I've got two students with me, and I'm a little cautious going, okay, this guy, I can tell from a distance, he's kind of angry something's going on. So we're approaching kind of cautiously, you know, thinking I wish I had my Marine friend with me right now. But I notice something's wrong. He's holding his hand, and there's blood dripping from it. He had just tried to close the city trash can cage that they had because they had left it open. And when he tried to close it, he smashed his finger in the, in the door of it. And it was broken open and swollen and nasty looking. And he's sitting there trying to figure out what to do because he has all of his belongings. And if he walks away, the other guys that are in the park are going to come take it. He has nothing to take care of it. So I walk up, I say, what can we do? How, what do you need? How can we help? But we're getting water out and pouring it on his finger. And he says, I need, I need antiseptic wipes. I need band-aids. I need stuff to clean this up. So we realize as another group comes up to us, they tell us, hey, just around the corner here, there's a rescue mission. Just head over there. They'll have stuff. 
one of the guys from the mission is there with them and joins us. And we start heading around the corner and I'm talking to him. And as we take just a few steps, Johnny, who's running sound today, was with me and he goes, hey, why don't we call Kennedy, who's running camera back here? Now, if any of you know Kennedy Roney, Kennedy carries a ridiculous amount of first aid equipment on him at all times. <laughs> and Kennedy that day is walking around Old Town Arvada going, God, why am I here? What do you have for me? What am I supposed to do? No one will talk to me. And his phone rings and it's Johnny saying, hey, we've got a guy who's hurt and we need your first aid stuff. So Kennedy comes running two blocks down, good thing for cross country, and meets us about a half a block from that rescue mission. We stop there as a group and Kennedy drops his bag, opens it up, starts pulling things out, giving to the man whatever the man asks, caring for him. He pulls out his soda that he had bought. It was a little lemonade thing. And the guy says, here's the problem. I'm I'm hypoglycemic. I've been bleeding for about an hour. Can I have that? Kennedy goes, absolutely, opens it and gives it to him. And the amazing thing about this is God took this opportunity for Kennedy to come and care and used it to give me the opportunity to share. You see, this man, Anthony, was supposed to be a pastor years ago. Right as he started his ministry, his family, which had connections to the Mexican mafia, um, he, he started his ministry and a mafia member came and killed his wife and kids because he had rejected that life. So Anthony was done with God. Couldn't understand why God would allow that to happen. Doesn't want anything to do with it. He's telling me, you know what? I'm at the point where either God's going to have to do a miracle or I'm just going to commit suicide. That's it. Those are the two options. And I got to explain to him as we're walking about how there is a hope in Christ. And he says, I know. The only thing that I keep having to fall back on is my faith. And I hate that. He's angry about that, that everything in his life keeps getting torn away except his faith. I got to talk to him about how God is pursuing him. And as Kennedy cared for him, he had brought up how he's frustrated because the Christians around don't help him. They won't help. He comes and asks and they'll say, well, we just have food for you. I don't need food right now. This is what I need. And they won't help him. And I got to explain, hey, I've got teenagers here that are Christians that are here helping you right now, caring for your needs not just your physical needs, but your emotional needs and your spiritual needs right now. Christians that are doing what it is that they're called to do. Got to care for him in that moment. And it was amazing as we cared for him and shared the truth of Jesus with him to remind him again of the gospel he once knew and held on to. How much his heart began to change and soften. How different his attitude became because we were willing to not just care, but to open our mouths and share with him and encourage him. To not try to fix everything and convince him that God didn't do those things to his family. It wasn't about that. It was about caring for him in that moment, in those needs, right where he was, and reminding him of the hope that is found only in Christ. After that conversation started heading back over to talk to my railroad friend on our way out. I saw a guy standing on a street corner that I had noticed before. He had been there for a while, and he was looking at cars and constantly talking to these cars that were going by, asking, hey, are you this person? Are you this person? So as I crossed the street over to him, I introduced myself, and he introduces himself. His name was Twist. I've never talked to a band named Twist before, but today was the day. So I asked Twist what he's doing. He says, well, I'm, I own a reconstruction company and I'm waiting. Somebody's supposed to come pick me up so we can go work at their house. I got to explain to him, hey, when I was in high school, I worked for a reconstruction company. We got to do this work. It's super fun. And then I was running out of time on the day, so I pulled a real cheesy move here. I said, just like you do reconstruction and I did reconstruction, Jesus wants to do reconstruction on our hearts. What do you know about him? Now, you may be going, that's super cheesy, but it worked. I don't mind the awkward <laughs> And Twist goes, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the spirit of word. And I went, oh, what? (laughs) He starts explaining to me how God is not just the spirit of word, but there are actually seven spirits of God. And God kind of interchanges between them as he needs. And I went, okay, now where are you hearing that from? And he goes, well, it's in the Bible. And I'm thinking, what Bible? It's not, where at in the Bible? He goes, I think it's in the book of Hezekiah. Now, 
In that moment, I was thinking, do I tell Twist, hey, we're going to sit down. I'm a pastor. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to look. I want you to show me where it says this so I can show you that it's wrong. But I also realized Twist is looking and waiting for somebody to come pick him up so he can go. He doesn't have the time for that. And right now, that's not his need. He doesn't need a pastor to sit down with him and say, Twist, you're wrong. But I did get to explain to him how the word says Jesus is not the embodiment of spirit of word. He is the word. He is God in flesh. And he came and he died. God himself. Not just a spirit that God sent. And I got to share that with him. And whether he agreed with me or not, we had a great conversation about it. And then I got to pray with him before I headed on to have the next conversation. And it was an awesome opportunity to pray for him and pray that God would silence whoever it is that is telling him these things, that God would give him clarity to see what his word says, and that God would give him opportunity in a church that he can plug into to learn and grow. You see, we have opportunities all around us to share the gospel with people, to encourage people with the gospel, and to remind them of a gospel that they once knew and have forgotten. But we need to have an attitude willing to do that, an attitude that's not about proving our point or winning an argument, but is about seeing people know Christ. It's like Paul when he's in Athens And he's been walking through the city and he comes to the Areopagus where there are people gathered to discuss intellectual things and debate philosophical things. And here comes Paul walking in. Now, Paul's a smart guy, well-educated. He could hold his own in that place. And Paul comes in and says, hey, men of Athens, I see you're really religious. I even noticed that you have all these shrines to all these gods, and you even have one to the unknown God. Well, today I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. And he shares with them the truth about the one and only God, the God above all their other gods, the God who created them and the God who loves them and sent his son to die for them and rose him from the dead, declaring that payment accepted. When Paul talked about the resurrection of the dead, some of them laughed at him. They were done listening to Paul. It's a joke. He's foolish. And Paul knew that that would be their reaction. But he didn't care. Because some of the others said, well, hey, come back tomorrow. I'm a little intrigued. I want to hear from you more. But some of them also got up and left with Paul because they believed. They no longer needed to sit and discuss the philosophy of life. They had found the answer. They had found what they were looking for. In Jesus Christ. And I love that Paul did not come in with sarcasm, with frustration, or attacking their belief system because he could have. He admired the fact that they were religious. He admired the fact that they were seeking. He came in and engaged them instead of enraging them, even though it made him look foolish to some. Didn't matter. It's not about him, it was about them. It's time for us to realize that in the gospel, which we are going to remember today as we take communion, that gospel is not just for you. That's a gospel that, that, yes, Jesus came and he died to pay the price that you owed God for your sins. And God raised him from the dead and, and declared on your behalf that that payment has been made in full. It's done. It is finished. And you can have eternal life by putting the full weight of your salvation on Jesus. It's just like rappelling off a mountain. The first thing that you have to do is lean back on the rope, putting your full faith on that rope to save you. That's what it looks like when we trust Jesus with our whole heart, every bit of the weight of our salvation placed on him. He's the rope. And all we have to do is that to be saved. And that is an incredible thing. And if there's any any of you in here that have found yourself in chair one, not knowing that truth, I invite you today to just put the weight of your salvation, fully trust in Jesus as the one and only way for you to be saved. And if you have any questions about that, you want to know more about that, please grab me after the service. I'd love to talk to you and share with you that, just to discuss things with you, to be able to help you understand how to do that. It is way more simple then you think, and God made it that way because of his love for you. 
But those of you that know Christ, that have put your faith in Christ, that are going to come and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you, I want you to let it resonate in you. What he has done, the truth and power of the gospel. But don't just let it resonate in you. Resonate long enough that you have to realize it's not just for you. You are saved and sent. That's what it is. You remember so that you can go and share. So that you can carry this hope, that you can carry this joy, that you can carry this freedom that you have found in Christ to your coworkers, your family members, your friends who don't know him. That needs to be our attitude. That needs to be where we stand because that's what we're called to in Christ. So as we remember today, I beg of you to please Start thinking about the people around you and your circles of influence who you have not brought up Christ to. To start putting aside your reputation and your image and to start realizing that their eternity is at stake, not your image. It is far more important that they know that hope and that truth than it is for you to be respected in that moment. It's time for us to put ourselves aside when we remember to realize that we're not just remembering what he has done, but what he has called us to. So let's pray. God, I just thank you for today. I thank you and praise you for the fact that you sent your son to die for us, that you have given us an opportunity to be restored in relationship with you through Jesus Christ and him alone. And I pray, God, that if there are any in here who do not know you through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that, God, you would draw them to yourself today. You would speak to their hearts. And, God, that today would be the day that they surrender to you, that they put the full weight of their salvation on Jesus and him alone. And I pray, God, that today as we remember your sacrifice, as we remember what it is that you have done for us, God, that we would realize that it goes beyond us, that, God, you have come to seek and save that which was lost, and there are still many of them. And, God, we are your ambassadors. You have sent us out into this world to represent you and to carry that message. Help us to do it, God, in ways that show your love. Help us to do it, God, in ways that engage people with the truth instead of enraging them with our opinions, God, in ways where we're not winning arguments, but we are winning souls in your name. God, would you start a revival in our hearts that we would awaken to what it is that you've called us to and that, God, it would become real to us. We would move from chair two, just being believer, into chair three, working, into chair four, making disciples as you have called us to. God, today as we remember, remind us of that and bring us into that work. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you're ready, come and take communion.